Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. Our confidence comes from you. Our life comes from you. Forgiveness comes from you. Joy comes from you. Satisfaction comes from you alone. Lord Jesus, we look to you today and we desire to see you more clearly so that we might love you more faithfully and serve you in a way that that brings you honor and glory. I pray for your help, Lord, as we look into your word. Help me to to portray accurately, to explain clearly, and to properly exalt you, your name, and your glory. Lord, give us eyes to see that we might fear you, love you, and worship you. Amen. Amen. Welcome. It's good to have you this morning. Hopefully no Easter hangover. Um, Every Sunday for us is a time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we've sung of him much this morning. I want to invite you today to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Some of you just got really excited. We just finished Titus, and we're starting a new sermon series, and you're thinking, all right, Revelation chapter 1. Some of you just got really nervous. Uh-oh, we're going into Revelation. Where is this going to go? We typically study through entire books of the Bible uh, verse by verse. That's our normal mode of preaching and teaching here. Um, so I don't know if this relieves you or excites you, but we're not going to be preaching through the entire book of Revelation right now. Um, just personally, as a pastor, I'd, I'd like to preach through uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and a couple minor prophets before I preach through Revelation, um, because so much of Revelation pulls from uh, those images, and so there's a little more study I want to do before we preach through Revelation. However, we are going to take the next uh, seven or eight weeks and just look at the first three chapters, the first three chapters of Revelation. Um, If you've studied this book a little bit, you may be aware that you can sort of break Revelation into two major sections, and we get this from verse 19. In chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says to John, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Those that are refers to John's contemporary situation. Jesus is going to show John some things that are going on in the churches, and he has a message for these churches, these seven different churches, as we'll see, that we're functioning and living life and Worshiping Christ and sharing the gospel and enduring persecution, and that was a contemporary situation. So he says, write about what you've seen, those that are, referring to that contemporary circumstance, and also those that are to take place after this. So the way I understand the book of Revelation is chapters 1 through 3 refers to the things that are, chapters 4 through 22 is the things that are to take place after this. Those are future events. That is prophetic uh, literature. It is eschatological in nature. It's talking about uh, the end times. And so we're not going to focus on chapters 4 through 22 this time. I hope to someday in the future. I'd just like to focus on these contemporary realities, on what Jesus has to say to the churches that were there functioning in John's day. So why? The question is, why should we pay attention to these letters to the churches? Well, I just want to share two reasons why, just real briefly by way of introduction. Number one, there's a blessing for us inherent to this. If you look in chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus says to John, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Maybe you're someone who likes to study Revelation a lot. Maybe you're someone who's never studied it. But many people typically think of the book of Revelation as one that is intended to inform us. It's supposed to tell us about the things that are going to take place. It's giving us information about the future. But the book of Revelation is also meant to instruct. Blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written. There is obedience that is called for. It calls for action. Revelation is a lot of things. It is intriguing. It is sometimes confusing. Uh, For those of us who are unaware of of some of the context there, it is complex. It is very vivid in, in, in its imagery. But what's often forgotten is that the book of Revelation is a letter sent to churches. This is for the church. 
It's for our instruction. It is for our edification. So John writes, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Maybe you think of the book of Revelation as helping us to be watchful of the times. That's the way many people read this. But these early chapters, as we look at these letters to the churches, they actually move us to be watchful over ourselves, to be watchful of what is going on in the church. These letters call for action, and there's a promise of blessing for those who hear and those who keep. And as a church, we want that. We want that blessing that God promises to those who hear and obey his word. So that's one reason why I'm excited to to teach through these uh, three chapters over the coming weeks. But secondly, and this is leading into really the focus for this morning's message, there's a second reason why these letters are important for us to study. That's because of the issue of authority. Authority. The book of Revelation, and specifically these messages to the seven churches, they matter because of whose voice speaks through them. It matters what Jesus has to say to those churches. This is the inescapable emphasis of all of chapter 1. If you can just sort of follow along with me, I'm going to give you a high-level run-through of this whole chapter because it is all about Jesus. In chapter, verse 1 and 2, we see that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation means this disclosure, this revealing, this communication of something that was formerly not seen, not known, and not understood. And it comes from Jesus Christ and is about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. This is about Jesus Christ, and the one who writes it, the apostle John, is giving testimony to Jesus Christ. What that means is that these are not just John's words. These are not John's ideas. These are not John's concern for the churches. This comes directly from Christ. Verses 4 and 5, John wishes blessing to them. He wishes grace and peace to them from Jesus Christ, who is the source of that grace and peace. He speaks of the identity of Jesus Christ in verse 5, that he's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what Jesus has done. That's the redemptive work of Christ. On the heels of that, John makes mention of the return of Christ. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. In verse 9, as John describes who he is, he describes the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that is in Jesus John's whole life, his whole experience is wrapped up in his relationship to Christ and his mission to serve Christ and preach the message of Christ. We see in verse 9 that the reason he's on the island of Patmos is because of the testimony of Jesus. His life is dedicated to the gospel. Verse 10, he says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, even the way that these early believers measured their week centered around Jesus Christ. He rose on Sunday. That's the Lord's day. That's when we worship. In verses 13 through 16, we see this amazing description of the glory of the risen Christ. I won't read it now because we're going to get into it in a minute. But John sees him. He sees him, not as a baby in the manger, not as a, a teacher in sandals who has calluses on his hands from being a carpenter. He's not seeing Jesus as someone who's weak, depleted of blood, gasping for air on a Roman cross. He's not seeing a Jesus who's wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a tomb. He's seeing the resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ. 
He receives assurance from Christ in verses 17 through 18. Comfort as he falls on his face in fear. And then he's given instruction from Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 20. So almost every verse in this chapter is about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. You might say, why does the book start like this? Why wouldn't John just jump right into the letters? Why not just say, grace and peace to you, from Jesus Christ, and then just jump right into chapter 2, verse 1, and start giving this information to the churches. Why is chapter 1 so packed with all of this truth about Jesus Christ? It's because we need to know whose voice it is that speaks in these letters. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is supreme in and over the church. That's the big idea this morning, if you're a note-taker. Jesus Christ is supreme in and over the church. Therefore, he must be heard. We better pay attention to his words. He must be honored. He deserves our glory, our fear, our, our worship, our admiration, our trust. He is to be loved because of what he's done. He's to be obeyed when he speaks. The reason these letters matter for us is because of whose voice speaks through them. Jesus Christ is supreme in and over the church. There's messages for seven different churches in these opening chapters. But before we jump into those over the next several weeks, today our aim is to ponder this vision of Christ that, that John experiences here in chapter 1. This intense event that, that, that he saw because it prepares us just like it prepared John to write, just like it prepared those early believers to, to read what came next, it prepares us to hear and to keep and to be blessed by underscoring the glory and the authority of Christ in and over the church. Just a little bit of the structure of this chapter. The prologue is verses 1 through 3. The Apostle John is the author. He's one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He's probably the last living apostle at this point. And he writes what he sees and what he hears from Jesus. He gives them this greeting in verses 4 through 8. And just like in the prologue, he makes it very clear. The one from whom they are receiving, the one from whom they need to receive is not John. They need the grace and the peace, the salvation and the life that comes through the triune God and through Jesus Christ. There's this amazing Description of the triune God, the eternal God, who, in verse 4, who was, who is, who is to come. The Holy Spirit is a little bit of a confusing statement here. I'm not intending to preach this section, but I have to just park here just to make clear what we find here in, in this greeting to the churches. There's a clear reference to the Father in verse 4. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. And then this reference to the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So the question is, okay, what is this reference to seven spirits? I think it's very clear this must be a reference to the Holy Spirit. It would be improper to place angels or the spirits of saints or anything else in this bracket between the Father and the Son. Only the Holy Spirit belongs there. It's this perfect symmetry of the Trinity, only the Holy Spirit can be the source of blessing and grace and peace that, that John is wishing to these people. So why the number seven? Well, biblically, the number seven is symbolic for fullness, for perfection. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is the one from whom John wishes blessing, grace, and peace to these believers. And additionally, there's likely a reference here to the Old Testament. If you read the book of Revelation, you can hardly go five words without a reference, an allusion, a quotation to the Old Testament. And I think John is referring here to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4 speaks of a vision that the prophet saw. In Zechariah 4.1, it says, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see. Behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, now the angel explains to Zechariah, 
about this vision of a lampstand with seven lit wicks on it. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This reference to seven and this vision of lampstands and spirits and this this reference to the spirit, I, I believe that John is lifting some of the imagery and the language of Zechariah chapter 4 to describe the fullness and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And since this letter is written to seven churches, and John will go on to describe the life of each of these churches as a lampstand, it seems that this kind of description of the Holy Spirit would have been a great encouragement to those first readers, an affirmation that the Spirit of God was among them in his fullness. So we have this this greeting to them where he wishes grace and peace from the eternal Father, from the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and then from Jesus Christ. Verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on the earth. Such an awe-inspiring reflection on the triune God is then immediately followed by a doxology. John starts worshiping. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's not the last time that we'll find these outbursts of worship, these songs, these doxologies that are littered all throughout the book of Revelation. And then he makes reference to the return of Christ. John knows, and he wants us to know, that there's a great climax to the story of history. There's a great climax on his way when Jesus comes back. And the author of this story from beginning to end is the eternal God who has no beginning or end. Verse 8, I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and and who is to come, the Almighty. All of this is introductory. John is ramping up and, and setting up this letter that he's about to write. And then he begins to tell us this story. And this is what I want to focus on this morning. It's a story he's retelling to these people, this profound vision that really explains why they're getting this letter in the mail. It really explains why John is writing to them in the first place. So I want to dive into this vision. There's three sections to this passage. We'll sort of break it down just to help us sort of organize the text. And then at the end, I'm going to draw out three implications for us. So we can break it down this way. Verses 9 through 10 shows us that the risen Christ commissions his servant. The risen Christ commissions his servant. He tells these people what happened. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Again, John is likely the last of the apostles and he's been banished. He's been sent to this island because he's been preaching the gospel. So he's now living on this remote island called Patmos. It was a Roman penal colony. It wasn't a vacation destination in the Mediterranean Sea. It was about 10 miles by 6 miles, this strip of volcanic rock. It was barren. It's about 37 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he was sent there, not because he's on vacation, not because he's going on a missions trip. He was sent there by the emperor Domitian for preaching Christ. That's why he calls himself a partner in their tribulation. It's interesting, all but one of the cities that he was writing to had a temple to the emperor. Emperor worship was a big deal. They were going through persecution as well because they were saying, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. John identifies with them. He says, hey, I'm on this island because of preaching the gospel, the same gospel that you believe And it's on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, that John has this profound experience. It says he is in the Spirit. He is swept up into a vision by the power of God. This connects John with the experience of the Old Testament prophets who had this unique, very unique experience that is not common, but is given to those who are tasked specifically by God to give revelation to God's people. He says, this is what happened to me. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So the first two verses, we see that it's the risen Christ who commissions his servant. He hears this voice, and the voice is none other than Jesus. Verse 11 says, 
Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John writes because Jesus tells him to. He's commissioned by Christ. But he's not just commissioned by Christ. The second section, verses 10 through 18, shows us that the risen Christ reveals his glory to John. He reveals his glory. Let's just read verses 10 through 18, or 11 through 18. He says, Write what you see in a book. This is the voice that was speaking. Write what you see. Send it to these churches. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I was thinking about this this week. Why would Jesus Christ give John this vision, this view, this, this sight of God's glory? You know, God could have just whispered the contents of these letters into John's ear. I mean, he did that at other times. He, he simply told in a straightforward manner, his prophets what to write. He could have given John subtle impressions, just sort of guided his instincts. He could have mediated this message through an angel. He could have had an angel show up and say, I want you to write this. But God didn't do that. He gave John a vision of the undiluted glory of Christ. Notice this description of Jesus that that we see here. It gives us a picture of his glorious authority. He says he had a voice in verse 10 like a trumpet. A voice like a trumpet. For those who know their Old Testament, this brings us back to Mount Sinai where God's glory came down and they heard the loud blast of a trumpet as God spoke to his covenant people. He spoke to the children of Israel. He describes him in verse Um, Let me see where we are here. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, he describes him as one like a son of man. This again is an Old Testament reference. It's pointing us back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel had a vision similar to John. And Daniel sees one like a son of man coming down to receive the eternal kingdom. This connection to Jesus being the Son of Man, even the quotation of Daniel, we already saw that in verse 7, that he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. That's a reference to the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel. That's about the Messiah. He describes him that his, the hairs of his head were white. Again, this points us back to Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days has hair that is white like wool, that is radiant It tells us that Jesus is not just the Son of Man. He's also the Son of God. He's described here with the same language that describes God in the Old Testament. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. Verse 14. Eyes like a flame of fire. That the resurrected Jesus sees all. He sees everything. He sees every sin. He sees every righteous deed done in faith. He sees every act of oppression by those who persecute his saints. And he sees every effort of endurance by those who are being persecuted. He is the omniscient God. Only God sees everything. And here we see Jesus described as eyes that are like flames of fire. There's power. There is power in these eyes. His feet are like burnished bronze. Again, there's a reference here to Daniel, this time to Daniel chapter 10. This is a a description of absolute purity. He says his voice is like the roar of many waters. I love this description. The voice of Christ drowning out all other voices. Unrelenting, unchanging, like the pounding of the waves into the surf. Jesus speaks 
with power and authority. His voice is like the roar of many waters. He's described as holding seven stars, which John later explains in verse 20, as the leaders or the representatives, the messengers to the churches. He's described as having a two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. This is a vivid description of the word of Christ, of his decisive judgment, the piercing truth of his word. Just like Hebrews 4 says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the word of Christ. It speaks life. And it speaks judgment. It speaks truth. It makes alive and it kills. He's described as his face shining like the sun in full strength. The sun is probably the closest thing we have in the material world for us to understand something of a small degree of the glory of God. It is constant. It is radiant. We may not always see it, but it's always there. And when we do see it, we can't stare straight at it. It's just too much for us to handle. The glory of Christ is incomparable. It is potent. It is radiant. It is powerful. And just like no one can look at the sun and not eventually turn away, no one can stand before the risen Christ and not bow down. That's why Philippians says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It doesn't mean that everyone will love Jesus. It just means that everyone, when they behold his glory, will be instantly brought to their knees. John sees the risen Christ and it says his face is shining like the sun in full strength. This is what John saw. Before he's given a message to write, he's given a vision Of the risen Christ. And it puts John on his face. Look in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just like the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 128, when he sees a vision of the glory of God, he's on his face. Just like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees a vision of the glory of God, he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Just like Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, chapter 10, he sees these visions and he's terrified. It brings him to his face when he encounters, when he sees the full splendor of the risen, resurrected, authoritative, glorious Jesus Christ. And I love the divine response as he falls on his face, verse 17. John writes, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Fear not. Fear not. The radiant Jesus Christ, eyes like flame, face shining like the sun, feet like burnished bronze, his word like a sword. He says, fear not. Fear not. The fear of dread, which has crushed John to the ground, is to be replaced by a different kind of fear, a fear of awe and reverence, which will move John not to lay on his face like a dead man, but will move him to worship and to obey, to do what it is that this Christ, this risen, resurrected Christ, calls him to do. This would have been encouraging to John to hear these words, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This would have taken away John's fear. Because Jesus rose from the dead, John could know with certainty that his mission was successful, that Jesus had accomplished exactly what he came to do, that victory was certain, that all of John's laboring, all of his suffering for the gospel on the island of Patmos was worth it. It was worth it. John need not fear the risen Christ because the risen Christ had conquered death, had conquered hell, had accomplished redemption through the shedding of his blood, and because John was being called to serve this Christ. And when King Jesus speaks his approval over you, there is nothing in the universe that you need to fear. So he says, fear not, fear not. The risen Christ reveals his glory to his servant. 
In the last few verses, we find that the risen Christ instructs his servant. Look in verses 17 through 20. Actually, we'll just jump right down to verse 19. We've already read the encouragement, fear not. He tells him who he is, what he's done. And then he says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus gives this instruction to John. John has fallen on his face and Jesus says, don't be afraid, fear not. He comforts him. And he tells him who he is and what he's done. I am the first and the last, the living one. That's who Jesus is. And he tells him what he's done. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore. Write therefore. In light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done, he tells John, I want you to write. I want you to write what I have to say. Because of his authority in and over the church, John is to write. Because Jesus has something to say. Jesus has something to say, and we need to hear it. He has a message that cannot be ignored. The risen Christ wants the church to know what it is that he's about to tell John. This whole chapter, I hope you've seen this. We're just sort of skipping over the surface. There's so much richness to this passage. But this whole chapter, from the prologue to the greeting to John's vision, it portrays Jesus Christ as the supreme authority in and over the church. And that authority, get this, is communicated, it's expressed through the written word. Right, therefore, the things that are and the things that are to come, the things that you will see. This is the lead-in. This is the setup, the introduction to these letters to the seven churches we're going to be looking at. John needs to know, and those believers need to know, and we need to know who it is that speaks to them, who it is that speaks through these letters. Only then will we be able to rightly receive and rightly respond to everything that John is going to write. These letters to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, letters to these churches that have been preserved so that it could be read in this church. I want to pull out three implications from this little overview of Revelation 1, three practical implications for us. Number one, our response to the Word of God, the Word of Christ, must always be a response to who he is. Our response to the word of Christ must always be a response to who he is, to his person. The message of Christ must never be disconnected from the person of Christ. We as the church need to know who it is who speaks to us, not just in these letters, but in all of Scripture. Who is it who speaks to us? All throughout chapter 1, we see this emphasis on who Jesus is. Verse 5, he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. We could unpack each of those to see the power and the truth and the glory of who Jesus is. In verse 17, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Everything from A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega. We see this emphasis even as these letters start being written down. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's reminding them constantly, the words you're reading, the words you're hearing are the words of Christ. This Christ Don't forget who he is. Look in chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He keeps pulling back aspects of this vision, reminding them that the message of Christ must not be separated from the person of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. 
and the seven stars. Jesus Christ, from whom proceeds the Holy Spirit. That's whose words are written down in these letters. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning meaning that he is the source, the starting point for all of God's creation. It is all made through him, by him, for him. All throughout these letters, in the vision itself, we are brought face to face with who Jesus is, and it matters. Because our response to the word of Christ must always be a response to who he is. We need a big view of Christ. We need a big view of Christ. But here's the problem. We are always in danger of a low view of Christ. The church today is plagued by a small view of Christ. A deficient view of Christ. A distorted view of Christ. We forget who Jesus is. Our awe and amazement wears off. And a small view of Christ, a low view of Christ, will lead to all sorts of problems for the church. It leads to fear, first of all. When you have a small view of Christ, other things start seeming bigger. Other things start seeming more impressive, more dangerous, more powerful than Jesus. The classic story from the Gospels is when Peter steps out of the boat and he starts walking on water because he's looking at Jesus and the moment he takes his eyes off Christ, he sees the wind, he sees the waves, he sees the storm, he becomes afraid. A small view of Christ, when we take our eyes off of who Jesus is and what he's really like, it leads to fear. It also leads to apathy. When we have a small view of Christ, we stop caring what Jesus thinks. We stop caring what Jesus says. We stop caring about what Jesus has done and what Jesus says he will do. And it leads to apathy. A small view of Christ leads to discouragement. When we don't see Jesus as the resurrected Christ who is victorious, who holds the keys to death and Hades, the one who is coming back in the clouds in glory to establish his kingdom, when we take our eyes off that, sometimes it feels like we're losing. Look around at the world today. Some of you have been deeply discouraged by all the craziness, the mess, the turmoil, the lies, the deception, the suffering that's going on in our world. When we take our eyes off Christ, it feels like we're losing. It feels like truth is being eroded. It feels like anything good in the world is crumbling. It feels like our efforts as Christians are feeble and ineffective to actually change anything. That's what happens when we have a small view of Christ. When we have a small view of Christ, it leads to distraction. Other things start to compete for our attention. Other things capture our interest. Other things dominate our focus. When we have a small view of Christ, it leads to impurity. Because we're not immediately impressed and struck by his holiness and his purity, we very easily begin to tolerate sin. We become numb to it. We become blind to it. We start defining right and wrong in terms of what we think and, and what offends us or what we think is not a big deal because Jesus has faded off into the margins. It leads to spiritual coldness. When you have a small view of Christ and who he is, then your love for Christ begins to feel like a chore. Worship feels like a duty. Our gratitude for all that Christ has done wears thin. It leads to spiritual coldness and it leads ultimately to compromise. We find ourselves making do in a world that is not aligned with Christ, not aligned with his agenda. Because we have a small view of Christ, the one whose voice is like the sound of many waters. When we have a small view of Christ, someone else's voice will start to matter more than his. And it leads to compromise. When a church settles for a small view of Christ, when a church forgets Jesus, sets him aside, fails to see the, the true glory of his person and work, 
then it leads to all sorts of problems for the church. And every one of those problems I just mentioned are problems that John is about to address in these seven letters. You can find examples of all of those struggles in these early churches. These letters will address them. Coldness, distraction, discouragement, compromise, immorality, fear. And so before John goes to point out those problems... First, John and the readers and we need to be reminded of who is talking. We need a big view of Christ. You see, our response to the word of Christ must always be a response to who he is. We need to see him rightly. A second implication from this vision that that John has is that our response to the word of Christ must always be a response to what he has done. Our response to what Jesus says is driven, motivated by, shaped by, strengthened by our understanding of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. We need to understand the person of Christ and we need to understand the work of Christ. The message of Jesus must never be separated from our understanding of his work. Again, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He died and came to life. I know that is so familiar for many of you. You hear it every Sunday. We celebrate it every Easter. We talk about it when we take communion. We talk about it when we practice baptism. We pray about it. We sing about it. And it seems so familiar. But it is central. He died and came to life. And like we sang this morning, we're going to rehearse that again and again and again and again. Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. He's the one who brings in outsiders and makes them part of God's family. He has the keys to death. He is the one who has the power to resurrect us from the grave. Only Jesus defeats death. That's what he does. Only Jesus frees us from our sins by his blood, like chapter 1 says in verse 5. Only Jesus loves us with a perfect and unconditional and faithful love. Verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's what he did. And then he made us a kingdom, verse 6. He made us priests to his God and Father. He gave us a new identity, a, a new activity in worshiping him and representing him in the world. That's what Jesus has done. And his work affects us. It's changed everything. No one and nothing can do what Jesus has done. He's the hero of all of history. And our response to his word is a response to what he has done. He's the only savior, the son of man, the son of God, who alone is able to rescue and who therefore deserves the worship of all creation. Have you become a beneficiary of that redemptive work? You may know the historical truth that Jesus died and rose again, but was it for you? Have you latched on to that offer of salvation in the gospel? Have you received Christ? Have you believed in his promise? Have you trusted in his power, the power of his his resurrection, his indestructible life, to be the power that saves you, that cleanses you? No amount of scrubbing and laundry detergent will do. It takes the blood of Christ. Have you experienced that? Do you share in his victory, the victory over death, the freedom from death? If not, then today you need to come to Christ because he's the only one who does that. There's salvation in no other name. It's Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you have become the beneficiary of his redemptive work, then listen, his word must be the first and highest authority for you we are his servants as chapter 1 verse 1 tells us we are bound to him by grace he has purchased us with his blood 
Therefore, our submission and our obedience is to be a joyful expression of gratitude and love and loyalty to the one who died for us. Our response to his word is a response to what he has done in saving us. So our response to the word of Christ must always be a response to who he is and to what he's done. And then finally, our response to the word of Christ must always be in light of what he will do. Our response to the word of Christ must always be a response of obedience because we know what's coming. We know what he will do. We know, according to verse 7 of chapter 1, that he is coming. He's coming. This whole chapter is loaded with references to Daniel 7 and the glorious Son of Man who receives an eternal kingdom from the Ancient of Days. He's coming back to rule over all the kings of the earth, including the Caesar that all of their cities worshipped. Jesus rules over all the kings of the earth. He's coming back to rescue his people, those who at that moment were experiencing tribulation, persecution, opposition, adversity, suffering. Jesus is coming back to end that, to rescue his people. He's coming back to judge his enemies. A sharp sword proceeds from his mouth. And as we read the rest of the book of Revelation, we see the profound, cataclysmic, universal judgment that is coming on the world. And we know that that's what's going to happen. The word of Christ, therefore, carries authority. That sword cuts, it divides, it judges, it makes alive and it kills. And that word tells us that he's coming back. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? I mean, that's again, it's another one of those things that we sing about, we talk about, we know it's true. But does it grip our hearts? Does it shape the way we live? Does it have emotional traction when life is painful, difficult, or hard? If you believe Jesus is coming back, if you believe that judgment is on the horizon, if you believe that rescue is coming for the people of God, then it will affect the way you approach God's word. Our response to the word of Christ is in light of the fact that we know what he will do, that he is coming back. After chapter 4, the rest of this book is dedicated to outlining the events of the future. It culminates in the triumphant return of Christ. And the whole book ends with these words in chapter 22. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The knowledge of the future, the knowledge of what Christ will do, is something that should compel us to recognize his authority and submit to his word. Jesus is the supreme authority in and over the church. We respond to his word, therefore, in light of who he is, in light of what he has done, in light of what he will do. There's one simple thing we can take away this morning. One thing we need to ask ourselves, and it's this. What is your view of Christ? Do you have a big view of the resurrected King of glory, the risen Son of God? Do you see him as the first and the last? Do you see his perfect holiness, his purity, his divine power as he holds the keys to death? Is his voice the loudest voice in your ears. You may claim to have a big view of Christ. You may be able to explain better than me all of the symbolism and the imagery and the rich descriptions that we find here in Revelation 1 of, of this Jesus. But if someone else's voice is louder in your ears, the voice of a person that you respect the voice of scholars and experts in the world, the voice of governments, human leaders. Maybe it's your own voice, your own wisdom, your own insights that you tend to trust and you don't trust anybody else. Maybe it's the voice of a certain church leader. Listen, no one's voice should be louder in our ears than the voice of Jesus Christ. We need to have a big view of Christ. Like a loud trumpet, like the sound of roaring waters. His word comes to us in absolute glorious authority. We need a big view of Christ. Revelation helps us with that. 
Let me encourage you. If you want to grow and you say, wow, I want a bigger view of Christ, I would encourage you, read the book of Revelation, all of it. Read all of it. Not trying to figure out what's going on in current events. Not trying to put together a timetable for eschatology. If you're interested in that, there's a Sunday school class we just wrapped up teaching a few months ago where we did talk through how we understand eschatology and the way that everything's going to unfold. That's good. But as you seek to grow in having a big view of Christ, just read the book of Revelation and look for Jesus on every page. Put together a portrait in your mind, in your heart, that is shaped by the vision of Christ that we see in this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him. If you read this book, you may come away with maybe some different views on eschatology than other people. We're going to have to sort through those details. But no matter where you land on the millennial kingdom and the return of Christ and tribulation and all of those things, anyone who truly knows Christ, who reads this book, will come away with a bigger view of Jesus, an understanding of his glory. And it will impact you so that you submit to his authority, so that you fear him, love him, trust him. When Jesus is seen rightly, he is feared truly, he is loved faithfully, he is worshipped gratefully, he's obeyed courageously. If you see Christ as he truly is, you will have no fear. You will have no fear. Rather, you will keep his word and you will be blessed. You will be sustained to the end, rewarded for your labors, and welcomed into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this book. It is at points mysterious and challenging for us to read and to understand. But one thing that is crystal clear, undeniable in this book, is that you, O Christ, are glorious. You are supreme. Ruler over all the kings on earth, you are coming back to establish your kingdom. And when you speak to us, you speak with all authority. All authority in and over your church. It's your church. You died for it. You are building it. You judge it. You sustain it. You purify it. You grow it. And you will bring the church home. Purified as a bride to be received with joy. Lord, I pray for your help over these next coming weeks as we go through these letters to the churches. I pray that we would hear your voice loud and clear. That we would be instructed. That we would be instructed as to how we need to be on guard against the different potential failures that creep into the church over time. Errors. Coldness. Discouragement. I pray that you would purify this church, that we would respond to your word by hearing it and keeping it so that we might experience the blessing that you desire to pour out upon us. We thank you, Jesus, that you died and that you rose again. You are the living one. Thank you that you hold the keys to death and hell. And our freedom, our life, our joy comes from you. We love you and we praise you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.